Hello and welcome to Nightlight. We all have the tendency to listen or think on a shallow level, especially regarding subjects that we consider too difficult or too scary. Out of that common lack of clarity, there pours a whole host of wrong conclusions about life and reality. Then, the flood of wrong conclusions becomes the fabric out of which we weave many false but commonly quoted perceptions. Falsehood that we think must be true because everybody says so. This is even more difficult to untangle because of the fact that many things are true that are commonly agreed upon. Common sense is a good thing until it's not. The common sense conclusions of Job's comforters are filled with statements that in themselves are generally true. That's why we can underline them, thinking that because they are valid out of, you know, in in the context of their own statement, that makes them valid in any context. So that makes them truths worth underlining. I know because I've got I've got many of them underlined in my own Bible. But unless we take in the whole story, we will miss very important points of Job's story. And one of the most important is that at the end of the story, God says what these false comforters of Job said, both about God and about Job, was all wrong. And Job was right. Well, Job said some things in his pain and fury that sitting on their own bottom are not right. He thought, for instance, we should receive good from God and we should receive evil. He thought uh, God was trying to kill him. Some things he may even have said that are outright dishonoring to God. So then how could God say to Job's friends, quote, you have not spoken of me that which is right the way Job has? I mean, don't you think we need to get at this and understand it more clearly? It seems extremely important that we understand it. This is where we must avoid quick reads and shallow, easy answers. I remember so many times in my early days hearing Job explained by some Bible teachers. So, of course, back in those days, I heard uh, myself saying the same things after After all, you know, so-and-so said it. It must be right, so I didn't check it. I just echoed them, not, not bothering to do my own work, until pain drove me to read it for myself. Anyway, these Bible teachers didn't spend much time unpacking Job. They had found the key that would explain the whole book. And here, they thought, was that key. They would turn us to Job chapter 3, verse 25 and 26. There would be kind of a drum roll of expectation in the atmosphere. And then the teacher would explain that the entire book, the whole drama is summed up in this verse, where Job confesses, quote, the thing which I greatly feared has come upon me, and that which I was afraid of has come unto me. Not even the entire verse or context around the verse, just that phrase. Now, I don't mean to be disrespectful to all those who taught that. Like I said, I'm, I'm guilty of echoing it myself back in those days. But when does one verse simply sum up an entire book so that no other insights need to be explored? The idea they meant to communicate was that all the trouble that came on Job was due to his secret inner fear. And then they would go on to explain how fear is the opposite of faith. And if he would have been walking in faith, it wouldn't have happened, yada, yada, yada. And if he had not had that fear, he would not have attracted the attack of Satan on him. And God would have continued to protect and bless him in response to that faith. The fact that that cannot possibly be true based on what we have read in the very beginning of the story was just simply ignored. Job's fear or lack of uh, of fears were not even mentioned by God or by Satan. 
Job's concern over the possible sins of his children that caused him to offer sacrifices on their behalf, which is something every parent may understand as a spiritual concern, may have been motivated by an unhealthy fear that could have been based on his creedal belief system, which understood the heart of God wrongly. But the story doesn't say so. Most would still consider that an act of humility and devotion was expressed by Job in those sacrifices and Job's love for his children. But whichever, none of this has anything whatsoever to do with why Job had suffered and was continuing in his suffering as it seemed to multiply. We already have been told what was happening. Job was not ever told, which contributed greatly to his pain. But the Hebrew of this verse about fear is better understood as a statement of Job's present state of mind, not a confession of some secret fear he nursed all along. For in other places, Job talks about how he rested in peace and in confidence in the Lord. He's saying, now that all my life is torn apart, the thing I fear then comes to me. And the moment I dread something, it seems to fall upon me. I am no longer at ease, nor am I quiet. The moment I try to rest, more trouble comes. That's a much better sense of, of what this verse is saying. So we must set aside the entire charismatic, name it and claim it, simplistic formula that reduces the entire book of Job to the idea that his inner fears brought satanic attacks, so all we have to do is avoid uh, negativity and stay positive and everything will be okay. Job was not informed that in the invisible realm, because God bragged on Job's integrity and faithfulness and desire to seek and honor the Lord, that a satanic wager had been levied against God. And if God would remove his hand of protection off Job's life and allow Satan to do what Satan does, not, by the way, what God does, then God would be forced to see that Job's devotion is only based on his blessings, not his love for God. And Satan is not attacking Job's lack of faith, but Job's lack of love. But here is a major point that we have to face head on and try to come to grips with. And that is that God himself is kind of obviously the initiator of this conversation that results in the satanic attack and outbreak of tragedies. God is not the perpetrator of the suffering, but he is the initiator of the conversation that sets in motion the suffering. To expand it based on the context of the entire conversation, it might go like this. Well, Satan, while you've been roaming around the universe seeking out objects of your hatred and accusation, have you considered by my servant Job that there is none like him in all the earth, a perfect and upright man who fears me and fully resists evil? Hmm? Have you done that? And this statement becomes the challenge against Satan's claim that Job only loves God because he is materially blessed. So clearly, God is the one initiating the challenge. Satan just took the bait. God's not the one who attacked Job. He's the one who pointed out Job's character, which Satan then sought to prove to be false. It is perfectly understandable at this point to ask if God initiated the whole conflict over Job but didn't actually attack Job directly. Well, isn't that not anything more than a distinction without a difference? I mean, isn't it maybe like the gang boss who doesn't actually pull the trigger but orders a hitman, some, some hitman to give the job to, to actually do the killing? Well, let's see. God does sound like a father bragging on his son. 
I hope we all know that God was not taken by surprise by this conversation any more than he was surprised at the events in the garden. God was not surprised when the serpent seduced Eve, and he was not surprised by Satan's attack against Job. For the attack in both stories is actually against God. I hope you see that. Eve and now Job were merely tools in Satan's attempt to attack the character of God, to prove that God is not good and love has no meaning. Something has been set in motion in the spirit world by the divine gift of freedom of choice, a gift that is absolutely necessary for love to exist in created beings. Love already exists, of course, in the Trinity and needed no challenge to prove itself But in created beings, both angelic and human, there must be freedom. For freedom, there must be choice. That's the nature of love. No other scenario can be offered. God only has one of two choices, if I can say that reverently and respectfully. He can either create a race of programmed robots, programmed so that it guarantees an ordered but loveless, lifeless outcome, or he can create a race of beings in his own image and likeness that have the power to freely choose. And that risks that the outcome may be more or less good or even terrible. I say reverently, but truly, God has no third option. Now, you can think and think all you want trying to come up with some other answer as to why things unfold as they do and as they did, but I can say with more confidence than ever after wrestling through these questions for most of my life, you won't be able to. The foundation of all reality is love. The necessity of love is freedom. The necessity of true freedom is the availability of choice and the result of choice is to make a possible wrong choice and the result of wrong choice is evil. Is there anything after the initiation of evil? Well, yes, but it's a secret hidden in God and only slowly unfolded before the eyes of the universe progressively. It's called redemption. God is not trying to work this out somehow. He knows exactly what he's doing. And trying to imagine all this can make us kind of dizzy. But when we say silly things like, why didn't God stop this or that? Or even worse, why didn't God stop me? Referring to some difficulty or tragedy, our own willful choice has set in motion. Well, then we're talking foolishness, really. God, of course, can stop anything, and God has and still does stop all kinds of things which we may or may not even know about. But the divine controlling puppet master God that micromanages both angels and humans in order to force a fake happy story, well, that God does not exist. God is smart enough, powerful enough, and good enough to allow freedom and still guide the outcome to his original, ultimate good purpose. That's for certain. So we know what set Satan's conflict over Job in motion. But what set Satan's conflict over God in motion? Well, we don't know that completely. We only have clues. I'm sure most of us know the generally accepted storyline, which is that the most powerful, beautiful being in all of creation, some think of it as Lucifer, became angry over the creation of man and began seeking ways to trip man up and eventually to destroy him. As we pointed out in the last session, this change within the character of this being was not instant. It was progressive. And if the interpretation of it, or I say it, his, its, Lucifer's, the interpretation of his deformation 
is rightly understood, if it is rightly understood in Isaiah 14 and even more in Ezekiel 28, we see this disintegration of his being to the point where it first accuses, then deceives, then tempts, and finally ends up becoming the fountainhead of all destructiveness in the universe and finally seen as the great dragon. If this is accurate, then evil is not a thing. It is a deformation of or absence of good. Evil can only be seen as a parasite that must feed off the established good or it cannot exist. Good can easily exist without evil. Evil cannot exist without good, which it must feed off of. So when we read statements like Isaiah 45, 7 or Amos 3, 6, that God creates evil, it is an extremely poor exegesis to cite as a proof text those verses and claim that God, therefore, is the source of of evil. These verses are referring to the fact that God is the ultimate arbiter of events, and He will see to it that when evil is perpetrated, its evil fruit will be born, not to affirm evil, but to expose it. This is a study all of its own, which demands more time than we can spend here without going off the tracks of. Job's story too far, but at the same time, to understand Job's story, we must deal with the tendency in us to become confused over who and what the source of evil is. Well, it's never God. Yet, then why would God purposefully bring Job into Satan's view and purposely, seemingly arouse the conflict over Job? Well, There's a commentary on Genesis chapter 1 that's found in Job chapter 38, speaking of when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Our typical, understandably limited view of the famous opening verses of creation found in Genesis chapter 1 has left us with, I don't mean this to sound critical, but a very childishly small universe in a very tiny and easily criticized explanation of existence. But we must leave that discussion for another time. The point here I want to make is that the Hebrew text of the opening storyline of Genesis 1 leaves huge room for unfolding dramas which are not given in detail to us. But we can glean that God formed a race of beings we refer to as angelic. But all the word angel communicates to most of us is the idea of a messenger. I mean, that's after all how it's translated. And it's accurate, but there are far more powers created than the messenger angels. These other beings, higher beings, are referred to in various places with terms that should conjure much larger pictures in our imagination than sweet-faced, white-gowned, winged creatures that border on the effeminate. Even the messenger angels, when they make appearances to humans, start with the same statement, don't be afraid. These are what we think of as the lower-level angels. Above them are what Paul refers to as principalities, powers, rulers, archons, And it would seem that above them are the cherubim. And above them, there is one referred to as the covering cherub. It's sadly stupid that we have managed to reduce the word cherub so badly that we actually refer to rosy-cheeked babies as being cherubic when the word actually refers to the total opposite of such an idea. A cherub should evoke images of a being of such magnitude, power, and glory as to think more in terms of a god than an angel. Certainly not the living god, of course, but still a god. So Paul refers to Satan as the god of this present age. Since the creator god has set in motion a universe he intends to fill with free, loving beings, He must be willing to go through whatever process is necessary to allow freedom 
yet to bring forth his ultimate aim, which is a race of fully grown, mature, free, trustworthy, loving sons and daughters. All this is summed up in the glory of the Son, Christ himself, for whom and by whom the entire universe was created to begin with. Hebrews chapter 1, Romans chapter 8, Colossians chapter 1 and 2, Ephesians chapter 1, Revelation chapter 21, and many other places. So since freedom is demanded to bring forth such sons, and choice to do other than God's will is necessary for such freedom, the only pathway for freedom to mature love will be suffering wherever God's way is resisted. All God's choices are for goodness. So any and all choices against God will result in the opposite of goodness. In other words, evil. Because there has been spawned in the universe now a scenario of full rebellion against God's will, therefore resistance to God's will, all resistances to God's will, are going to generate conflict which will cause suffering. Those who endure in love for God through this conflict will grow and mature through the very pressure of the conflict itself into sons and daughters. And ladies, I hope you do understand the reference to sons always includes male and female. The great wisdom and goodness of God is shown in that the fact that uh, what the enemy means for evil is the very tool used by God for bringing us into that perfection. The path is a long one that requires endurance. Job begins to learn this in chapter 13, verse 15, where he says, Though God slay me, yet will I trust him. The alternate translation says, Yet will I wait for him. Seeming to imply to me that Job has already caught a glimpse of an understanding about God he had not seen before, that whatever is going on, he must learn to wait and see. To wait means to trust, and to trust means to wait. All this obviously, but not easily, means a long, unclear passing of time. We silly little American TV watchers want and expect it all to happen in a few weekly episodes. But if we are going to have a biblical view of the universe and of our own lives, for that matter, we must be willing to have a much larger, wider, deeper, and longer vision. It seems to be one of the limitations of our fallen condition that we cannot see the long term very well, if if, if at all, really. Job, along with his friends, had a simplistic short-term view of reality. They had reduced it down to this very incomplete formula. That was, God always rewards good with blessings. God always punishes evil with curses. They think that both good and evil come from God. They have no conception that there is a secondary power, originally created as good, but now evil and yet with freedom to choose evil and to manifest it, that this evil power is still allowed for unknown reasons to openly resist the good. They do not know that this being, though limited, is terribly formidable and hates man. And Job is the man who has been chosen as the battlefield this initial divine satanic battle is being fought on. We only know because we are allowed to see behind the curtain. From that heavenly perspective, God is unfolding a process which from the earthly side seems to be nothing more than cruel, meaningless destruction. From the heavenly side, God is actually defeating the satanic argument against man and against himself by using the very tools of evil to eventually destroy evil out of the universe. This principle of divine wisdom in using Satan's worst against man in order to bring man to his best will be repeated in many forms throughout history. 
until it finally is completely manifested in the ultimate human battlefield, which is the life of the man who is God. When God brings man and himself together in one, and there allows the battlefield to completely burn itself out to completion on the cross, the ultimate tool of satanic torture on the human level. The cross is the final battlefield, and the resurrection is the setting in motion of a completely new order of life. So then, if that's true, why is earth such a mess still? Well, because the resurrection life is to be seeded and grow in each of us through the same process that was first demonstrated as a prototype in the life of Job. We don't all suffer the depth of what Job suffered, but we all go through our own process. We must, through much tribulation, enter into the fullness of the kingdom. We must learn to endure when we cannot see clearly by faith. We must overcome evil with good, so that by this daily battlefield conflict, our enduring against evil not only overcomes evil, but forms in us the character of Christ. The war to stop God's plan becomes the tool God uses to fulfill his plan so that all things work together for we who are called according to his purpose. So everything becomes for us. So then, if God is for us, who or what can be against us? What can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sakes we all are killed all the day long and are accounted as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all this we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We get to see this mystery unfolded and explained. Job did not get to see it unfolded, but he is the beginning of its unfolding, though he could not understand any of it. Don't worry, we'll get to a more fulfilling, detailed story about Job's answer, but I have to withhold that for now. The satanic and even the holy angels don't understand any of this. That's why Peter says the angels desire to look into this, They don't get it. They're awed by it. It drives them to worship and wonder, but they don't fully understand it. But it's now being explained to them by us as we pass through our own battles with our hearts and eyes on Jesus. Ephesians 3, verse 10, But now to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, The secret plan of redemption is being made known by the church, revealing the manifold, many-sided, many-layered wisdom of God. That's what's happening right now. And will continue to unfold till it's complete. Now Job is suffering, suffering terribly from many directions, and he doesn't know why. This has totally shaken him out of his confidence in the commonly accepted creed of his religious world. But to his former friends who have come to help him, they end up helping the accuser. It is clear to their common sense religious creed, their dogma, that Job is a terrible sinner. So they think that God is the source of his suffering. Then to add more pain to the accusation, his creed-controlled friends spend a great deal of energy trying to prove that not only is Job obviously a great sinner, but he must have been a hypocrite as well, secretly hiding his evil with public life, trying to demonstrate the opposite. In all this, then, they become the voice of the satanic accuser himself, the voice amplified. It's a temptation to go off here and spend more time than May, we may be capable of. Uh, let's just suffice to say that the great work of satanic power in the world may be more demonstrated by such religious cruelty in the, in the name of creeds 
than in what we think of as satanic evil, such as Baphomet statues or occult symbols in pop music, bad as those things may be. Anyway, so Job has lost his fortune, his health, the comfort of his wife, his friends, the lives of his children. And now in the midst of all that he has suffered, he must now also, added to that, defend himself from his comforters who are acting more as prosecutors. All this is forcing Job to now give up the last security. He must turn away from his common sense view of God, which we he has embraced along with all of his other friends, accepting and entrusting ideas of who God is and how he works, and realizing those accepted ideas are not true. In fact, they're all wrong. He must take a full stand against his friends, his own creed, and say in so many words, quote, what you say about me is wrong, and I know it's wrong. Therefore, what you say about God is wrong, and I know it is wrong too. Therefore, what we have all believed about God, that good always produces reward, and bad always is punished by by evil immediately, well, it's not, it's not true. I don't know why I'm suffering. There's clearly something else at work which I don't understand. I don't know why God is allowing it. But I refuse to give in to what I know is a lie in order to placate the religious system that you're trying to force upon me. I know what you say about God is wrong. I can't tell you the truth of what is right, so I will wait for him. So now we can add to his unendurable list of sorrows, this final one. His complete view of the world and how it works must be given up. Now, think about this. See, we can zoom through this list and that thing I mentioned at the beginning, that thing in our brain that seeks a shallow, quick, easy way out from contemplating what we're, what we're looking at kicks in. I don't want it to kick in. So if I keep repeating myself in this, this teaching, it's because I'm, I really want to help us think clearly about how deeply he suffered. There is absolutely no comfort anywhere at all, except in God himself. But now, he's not sure who that is. It's not the God he thought he knew, but in the real God, whom he realizes he must find. It is this real God that is now his true and only hope. God does not bow to the religious spirit. And so Job doesn't either. Job doesn't bow to the religious demands of the system. He knows there are many things he does not know, but what he does know, he stands by with great courage. He knows that he is not guilty of what his so-called friends are saying of him, and he knows that God is not unjust. So therefore, he must believe now that the creed is wrong. And even if it kills him, he must take his stand and he believes God will eventually vindicate him. Here we see what is considered by many to be the most famous verse in the entire story in which we have already alluded. Beginning in chapter 13, verse 13, Job says, Be silent. Let me alone that I may speak and let let me come let come what may. In other words, whatever may come of me speaking my mind, let it come. Why do you think I take my flesh in my teeth or put my life in my hand by saying what, I, what I'm saying? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Or, as I said a while ago, yet will I wait for him. And yet I will maintain my own self-defense before him. Now here we need to stop for a minute 
and consider some things about this verse. The King James Version has been quoted most often as meaning that Job is making a strong declaration of his faith in God's goodness by saying, in effect, I don't care what happens. Even if God slays me, I will trust him and will live to make my case before him. And that, to me, is right. But other interpreters put another spin on it, saying, well, what Job is saying here is, all of you just shut up and let me speak, and whatever happens, just it has to happen. Who do, who do people think I'm willing, or why do you people think I'm willing to take my life in my hands and accuse God? He may kill me, but even if he kills me, I will trust that eventually I will be able to make my case before him anyway. Now, there's room in the Hebrew text to spin it either way. I don't accept that that is what is happening. Uh, the, the, the most negative interpretation, I don't really accept that, but I have to admit it's there. I think what makes this text and others like it to have either a positive or a negative interpretation at the same time, is that Job himself is experiencing powerful, seemingly opposite emotions about God all at the same time. This is where we need the Holy Spirit to speak to us from the text. Job is maybe only exclaiming his own thoughts and sufferings in those thoughts, yet the Holy Spirit is speaking through those very thoughts in a vastly more profound prophetic way. For instance, Job says in chapter 9, verse 32 and 33, God is not a man like I am, so I should answer him, uh, and he would then come and, and respond to me, and, and we could work this out. Neither is there any umpire between us that might lay his hands upon us both, Job says. Job has no idea that he is profoundly prophesying the incarnation of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, where Jesus takes hold of both God and man in himself and becomes far more than a mere umpire between two entities but he is the unifying redeemer of the whole world. So Job, though he does not see, cannot see, what is really going on is at times revealing the eventual unfolding of the great mystery which he at present is completely clueless about. The one line of hope Job has is that his integrity, which argues against his friends, is also the integrity that refuses to believe God has abandoned him. That's all. Naked, raw, emotionless faith. A faith so strong that it refuses religious dogma, refuses human wisdom, refuses trust in appearances, refuses to continue to embrace an image of God to fit religious common sense. A faith so strong that he actually has the courage to challenge God himself. He now refuses his former image of God and embraces one that is far closer to reality. Job now believes God is not the author of all evil and that for some reason Job does not, at this point, cannot yet know. Evil can strike him who is righteous, but he is conflicted over whether or not God is doing it. People through the ages walk through their life and sometimes when they're hit with a certain form of evil whatever form that takes end up claiming that they're now atheists these kinds of people are not the shallow almost clownish pop culture atheists who chime in together on TV talk shows to talk about the God they don't believe in these are serious minded thoughtful suffering people I've met quite a few of them, people who have struggled deeply with hardest questions of existence. They are maybe a bereaved parent, a betrayed spouse, or any number of other privately wounded souls whose sufferings led them to ask the big question that they cannot find answers for. 
They add to their private pain all the agonizing suffering of the entire race and without all diminishing their uh, without at all diminishing their individual inner battles there's added to that this vast ocean of mourners in various floods of sorrow and unimaginable horrendously overwhelming hells of earthly insanity do we dare try to start listing even a few of them the jews the Rwandans, the Croatians and Serbs, the starving Ukrainians at the hands of Stalin, the, the Chinese masses under Mao, the unnamed unknown populations of history who seem to be no more than sand pebbles washed away by the ebb and flow of time. On the other hand, our private suffering outdoes any concern for the wider world when we're in our own suffering. Yet on the other hand, who would claim when they're in their right mind, no one's in their right mind when they're suffering their own personal loss. But when they can see clearly, who would claim in even the face of their own pain that the suffering of the masses are not far greater mystery and far more difficult issue to unpack Private personal sorrow is, of course, all we can focus on when we're in it. Like the old song that asks, Why does the sun go on shining? Why does the sea reach the shore? Don't they know it's the end of the world because you don't love me anymore? (laughs) Whether personal or national or worldwide, where is God in all of that? Why is this degree of suffering allowed? Many suffer in silence with no voice, even trying to offer comfort. But others suffer from hearing the voices, all the theological and philosophical answers, which are not answers, which have left them even more doubtful. So the more they think, the more hopelessly impossible they find the answers to be acceptable. And they end up giving up on the whole idea of God. And so they claim to be atheists. In their grieving inner integrity, integrity, they they come to despairing conclusion that they cannot and will not bow to that kind of God. So their only recourse then seems to be not believing in any God at all, for that to them is far more honest and reasonable than to bow mindlessly to what they perceive to be a heartless despot who has created a world where evil wins, where meaning is meaningless, and where the suffering of a frail, fragile humanity is of no more concern or object of compassion than so many insects. Just collateral damage. Human debris left over in the meaningless divine experimental laboratory. They see the evil boot of the governments to be no different than the divine boot that allows it. So instead of believing in a crushing evil God they find, they must reject all gods. We tend to bewail the wicked unbelief of these atheists, but this atheist, the one I've been describing, in the state of mind they're in, may be closer to the real God than ever. For the atheist and the real God both fully agree that such a concept of God is a damn lie. And they both are on the same page in rejecting it. Now here's the reality of our present earthly condition. Wrong things happen actually because things are wrong at the basis of the present reality. There's really no mystery about evil and suffering. The mystery is not the bad things that are happening The true mystery is that good things still seem to triumph and resurrect in the face of such evil. Things are not okay. When we hear so often the groundless phrase, don't worry, everything's going to be all right, it's a vapid, foolishly naive, whistling-in-the-dark, rabbit's foot term. There's no capital to back up such statements. All cases are terminal. Everything is going to be okay. Well, that may be valid in a tiny short-term situation now and then. 
But in the overall long-term story of life, things will not all be okay. For, again, to quote Chambers, the ground of earthly reality is not capable of producing lasting goodness. The ground of reality is tragic. Chambers wrote his great book about Job, titled Baffled to Fight Better, in 1917, in the birth pangs of World War I. Now, most of us, unless we've made a study of that era, are barely aware of the deeply traumatizing effect of that war on all of Europe, and, in, and of course, the entire world, but especially Great Britain. The trauma was made all the more shocking by the fact that before they were thrown into this hell, they were playing in what seemed to be a, a modern semi-heaven, speaking, of course, relatively and hyperbolically. But G.K. Chesterton said of the British people of the Victorian era, the Victorians believed that the world had ended well because the world had ended with them. That phrase and the idea behind it could easily be transferred to America and the entire West as well until recently. Then, in that atmosphere of self-congratulation, the war to end all wars slammed for five years with mindless, hellish violence until there was not a home in all of England that was not shrouded by bereavement. It was Chambers' job daily to write the letters to parents informing them of the circumstances in which their sons died. Out of that daily experience, Chambers wrote these words. Facing facts as they are produces despair, not frenzy, but real downright despair. And God never blames a person for despair. The man who thinks must be pessimistic. Thinking can never produce optimism. The wisest man that ever lived said that, quote, he that increases knowledge increases sorrow. The basis of things is not reasonable, but wild and tragic. And to face things as they really are brings us to the ordeal of despair. Blessed are they that mourn, our Lord says. Blessed, because when a person gets to despair... He knows that all his thinking will never get him out. He will only get out by the creative effort of God. Consequently, he is in the right attitude then to receive from God that which he cannot gain for himself. And by the way, lest you think that Oswald Chambers was a morose, dark figure of religion, he was one of the most joyful life-filled people. The people that knew him said that you couldn't get around him without laughing with joy. Why was he so full of joy? Well, because he had faced the worst and then seen beyond the worst to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he was not frightened by the darkness of the world. I have a very close friend, a man... I consider one of the strongest and best men I know, not only physically, but in his mental capacities, uh, strength to endure a great deal of stress. He's a person whose professional life has taken him into some daunting and demanding situations which most, most of us could not endure. He's carried those burdensome tasks for years with great integrity. But he called me a few days ago to tell me of the sudden unexpected death of a child, the little daughter of a close associate of his. They had come home from a family outing and she was complaining of body aches with bruises appearing on her arms. The doctors told them it was leukemia, but treatable. They took her in for the initial treatments and she died. As the funeral party was departing the sanctuary, he saw the mother of this child holding her husband's arms like a lifeline. And as he watched her look behind her at her little girl's flower-covered coffin, the paroxysm of her unspeakable grief then tore through her so forcefully 
but her body bent double toward the floor. Then he said, as his own voice was choking with me over the phone, I felt her agony rip through me, and I resonated with her as if I was her. I sobbed from every fiber of my being. I've never suffered personally such an agony as he was describing that his friend's wife was suffering. But I've often felt the shock of supercharged empathy that sends a resonating bolt of inexpressible sorrow through my own soul. And at that moment of their pain striking me, I'm only aware of my inability to say or do anything helpful. I am aware that even to be a close proximity to such pain is still never the same as being the direct primary recipient of it. When a soul suffers grief that is so profound that to try to speak a word is worse than useless. That's how I feel right now. When we have the common experience of maybe an entire race or nation, a person becomes totally overwhelmed by its uniqueness still to them personally. It's the way we're made we cannot apologize for it or, or rise above it. But from this fact, we can say the only good thing Job's friends did was to sit with him in silent grief and weep. That was real. That was helpful. And that was the last thing they did that was good in this story. It's never the same to empathize, no matter how deeply as it is to be the personal target, the epicenter of such an earthquake. The whole human race has suffered, is suffering, and will suffer some form of that level of sorrow. And each of us individually will know something of it before our life is finished, unless we're suddenly taken out. The basis of life is not reasonable. Life is beautiful and orderly, in moments, but as we've come to rightly say, life is not a snapshot. The basis of life is tragic, wild, irrational, and cruel. Life is not mostly good and is interrupted with the anomaly of a bad day. Life is mostly wrong, with prevenient grace supplying us the mercy to help us survive this ordeal, this killing war that we're in. Wrong things happen actually because things are wrong, really. Did, did, did you get that? Wrong things happen actually because things are wrong, really. I know I'm repeating myself again. It's certainly understandable if you get weary with my repetition, but I'm trying to destroy the plastic shield we have all had formed around our minds that says when anything unpleasant is on the screen, let's just change the channel. Now, suddenly, though it's clear, not sudden to anyone who has been watching for the past few decades, but suddenly to some people, we're entering a sea change of massive proportions. It's now very possible to imagine world war breaking out at several central points. The soul of this country is sick, and yet we still, as a culture, twiddle our thumbs and spend our capital on vapid nonsense, and worse, blasphemous stupidity. A nation can reach a point where the only mercy left to salvage it is for all its blessings to be removed and its choices allowed to reach their horrible apex. There's a film about the Vietnam War that was shown footage of the hell of carpet bombing. While in the background soundtrack, they played Louis Armstrong's song, What a Beautiful, Wonderful World. It's one of my favorite songs, by the way. But the message of the irony of this will always stay with me. I see fields of green, red roses too. I, I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. 
as images of exploding napalm incinerate field after field. What makes the earth such a heartbreaking thing is its true beauty undercut by its foundation of tragedy. Chambers writes, When a man is hit by undeserved destruction, the immediate result is to slander God. Why should God allow this to happen? There are people today who are going through an onslaught of destruction in this war that paralyzes all our platitudes and preaching the only thing that will bring relief is the consolation of Christ. It's a good thing to feel our own powerlessness in the face of destruction. It makes us know how much we are ultimately dependent on God. In these days, one thing this war has done is to knock on the head all such shallow optimism as telling people, look on the bright side, or every cloud has a silver lining. There are some clouds that are black all through. There are two phrases from that quote from Chambers I want to focus on as we close. They're the two phrases that I think might irritate people to the point of saying so. People who are in some form of grief. The first one is, quote, the only thing that will bring relief is the consolation of Christ. The second one, it helps us know how much we are ultimately dependent on God. Now these two statements stand out to me as statements that might cause some kind of negative reaction in some, whether they say so out loud or not. And here's why. How could these statements be seen as negative? Well, the inner thoughts of those people, or again, maybe maybe they become statements they actually explode with. Don't tell me of the consolation of Christ. Don't tell me I'm dependent on God. Where was God's consolation when my tragedy happened? Why should I be dependent on him now that I've lost what I've lost? And let me say quickly, for those of you who are hearing my voice, who I know that you know, you and I have personally walked recently through similar heartaches of your own. I'm not preaching at you. I'm not preaching at any of us individually. I am calling us all to awaken to where we may may be. So that on the other side of that awakening, there can be real restoration and renewal and resurrection in us. But these are the responses of people who had a shallow, creedal, half belief system that they think is faith in God but is proven to be weak and shallow when it's tested. And such people, faith when it is most needed becomes least embraced. Faith when it is most needed becomes least embraced. Such a person in the throes of grief or loss is now able to see that they are not losing their belief but they are only losing their belief in their belief. They must be suspended in midair over the abyss of utter hopelessness by letting go of the weak rope that they were only loosely holding to anyway. Then on their way down into hopeless despair, they are able to cry out for the God who is really there. This is why God must allow the seeming security of the good life to be shaken. Those of us who have been some, had some form of experience in this knows what it's like to have our belief systems in our belief systems shattered and then to emerge from those ashes with a depth of reality and relationship with the real God which we previously thought we really had. We were unable to see the falseness of it until the ground we thought we could stand on gave way under us. And just when we thought we were falling, found that beneath us were the everlasting arms. I was struggling with how to best close this session when I received a text from Martha Mullins. She doesn't know what I'm writing about or that I am even writing at this moment. She is texting these words to me. She writes, Maybe it takes ruin 
to really open our eyes and our hearts toward God. Then she sent Psalm 46 from the Passion Version with which I will close. When the nations are in an uproar with the tittering kingdoms toppling, God simply raises his voice and the earth begins to disintegrate before him. Here he comes, the commander. The mighty Lord of angel armies is on our side. The God of Jacob fights for us. Everyone look. Come and see the breathtaking wonders of our God. For he brings both ruin and revival. He's the one who makes conflicts and throughout the earth, breaking and burning every weapon of war. Surrender your anxiety. Be silent. Stop your striving. And you will see that I am God. I am the God above all the nations. And I will be exalted throughout all the earth. Father, please take these struggling words of mine that are inept. And by your Holy Spirit, weave from them whatever good and true and lasting gold that you can spin out of my straw so that we are people who are truly prepared for whatever comes because we have passed through our despair unto resurrection morning already in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Lord willing, we'll talk again soon.